910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. We're in the middle of the series, The Best Sermon Ever. We've been delving into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. Chris, this is a great follow episode to episode 40 that we did in the Real Truth About Real Stuff series? Yeah, it is. And for those of you who may not have listened to that one, or just to refresh your memory if you have, that was the episode called Name It and Claim It. In that episode, we talked about and dispelled using scripture, the Word of Faith movement. In that episode, we said that the Word of Faith movement often uses Mark 11, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. That is a verse they definitely use. Oh my gosh, all the time. But they also use another verse that we're going to look at today in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's Matthew 7, 7 to 11, which says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you... If his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Just like with the Mark 11 passage, this passage in Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount is often misinterpreted to mean that if you have enough faith and if you pray hard enough, God will give you all the earthly desires of your heart. In the Name It and Claim It episode, we showed using scripture why these verses cannot mean this. So we're not going to repeat all of that today, but we encourage you to check it out if you haven't listened to it yet. We do. So now that we said what it doesn't mean, let's look at what it actually means. Remember, The Sermon on the Mount is specifically meant for believers, and we keep saying that. We do. But it's crucial. It is crucial to understanding it, yes. This passage spoken by Jesus is an invitation for every Christian to feel confident about going to God with whatever is on our hearts. Jesus reiterates this truth by repeating it three times. Ask, seek, knock. The number three in the Bible is a symbol of completeness and a reference to the Trinity. Jesus is saying because of him and what he's done, his people have complete and absolute access to God and should take full advantage of that blessing. So we can go to God and ask him to help us get a new job, to help our financial situation, or heal a loved one. Jesus is encouraging honest, intimate communication with God the Father through prayer. Yep, that's right. We looked at the model for prayer that Jesus gives us back in episode 49 when we looked at the part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer. We looked at the Lord's Prayer and how it should shape our prayers using ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, thanksgiving and supplication and just to repeat quickly how we summed up that episode acts is not a legalistic model that must always be followed exactly that would be no better than what the pharisees were doing but when we incorporate acts into our prayer life we will understand that prayer is not just about asking god for things it's a discipline that god uses to change us and grow us and we will see that happening yep 
And in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expands on what our prayer life should look like, specifically the supplication part. Jesus makes it clear that through him, we have direct, intimate access to God our Father. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' modeled supplication line was, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you remember, we determined that Jesus uses this supplication because while we can absolutely go to God with all of our needs, all of our wants, desires, worries, concerns, and anything and everything else, Jesus shows us that our greatest need while we're on earth is to be delivered from Satan and sin, which both lead to death. That's right. And like we said, he's expanding on the supplication in this section. We should definitely recognize that our greatest need is to be delivered from Satan and sin. But beyond that, God's our Father. And since he's our Father, we can approach him with anything and everything. As we always say, Scripture must interpret Scripture. And so while we can go to the Lord confidently about anything because of what Jesus did on the cross and because we are his, there are truths in the Bible that we must also understand to get this right. Yes, there are. So, Chris, let's look at some of those truths. The first truth we should understand is that God's with us. So long as we're a believer, God is with us and available to us, no matter where we may be feeling spiritually at the moment. Sometimes we can feel God's presence, and we just need to ask, and he'll answer. Sometimes we feel like we haven't seen him work in a situation, kind of like he's in another room. We can knock, and he'll open the door. Or sometimes we might be having a dry spell and we're not feeling his presence at the moment at all. In those instances, we can seek him and he'll be found. God is here for us every second of every day. He's available to us and wants to hear from us. And we see this truth in verses like Psalm 145, 18 and 19, which says, The Lord is near to all who call on him. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. And as we looked at in the Name It and Claim It episode, the desires that he fulfills must be desires that line up with his will. God cannot and will not ever give anyone something that does not line up with his will, which means he'll never fulfill desires that are sinful or that are not for the spiritual good of the believer. And Chris, that leads perfectly into the second truth about God. God is good. This passage promises that if we ask, it will be given to us. If we knock, the door will be open. If we seek, we will find. These verses are followed by verse 9 to 11, where Jesus is comparing an earthly father to God the Father. The comparison's obvious. If we, with our sin nature as earthly parents, only want the best for our children, how much more does our perfect holy Lord want the best for his children? Exactly. And again, we need to understand the difference between God answering us, opening the door for us, and being found by us, and is granting all of our requests. The former means he's always listening. The latter is directly connected with God's goodness. For example, if your four-year-old begged you to buy him a pocket knife, you probably wouldn't. I, you shouldn't. Let me just say that. Why? Because it's not good for a four-year-old to have a knife. If your husband got an amazing job in another state and you and he decided to move the family because of it, but your eight-year-old begged you not to go, you probably would still go. Why? Because an eight-year-old has no comprehension about family finances or what will be best long-term. So, 
if you as a parent deny your children's requests or make decisions your children don't like because it's in their best interests, how much more does God do this? God knows everything. He sees everything. And he's completely sovereign over everything. So just as you can be confident that he hears you, you can also be confident that he answers our prayers according to what's in our best interest. It's always for our spiritual best interest. But it can also sometimes be for our earthly best interest. Amen to that. Isaiah 41, 8 to 10 is a great verse that reiterates this. Here's what it says. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called you from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In this passage, God is speaking to his chosen people of Israel, but he's also addressing the offspring of Abraham, so that would include all of his people. Anyone who's come to saving faith in Jesus is considered an offspring of Abraham through adoption. So these verses are for us. Part of God's goodness is protecting us, and that means even protecting us from ourselves when we ask for things that are not for our spiritual best interests. Absolutely. So another truth is that God always has a purpose. When you read these verses in Matthew, you might wonder, well, how could not healing someone I love be God showing me his goodness? And it's understandable that you might think that. Yes. But we need to take all of the truths about God together, not just individually. So it's after the truths that God is always with us and that God is completely good that we add that he always has a purpose. Let's explain this a little bit, Rose. There are two wills of God, God's decretive will and his preceptive will. God's decretive will is the will of God that will always come to pass no matter what. He is working everything to accomplish his purposes. We have no way of knowing what God's decretive will. That's the one people always want to know <laughs> and it's the one we can't know and we shouldn't focus on trying to know. No. God is the almighty creator of the universe, and we are merely his creation. It's not for us to know what he's up to. That's right. His other will, however, his perceptive will, is for us to know. In fact, it's what he reveals to us in the Bible. He clearly lays out this will of what his plan of redemption for his people is, what he expects of his people, and what the ultimate end will be for both his people and for those who don't belong to him. This is the will we sin against, this is the will that you sometimes will hear people say we're outside of. Yeah, sometimes people will think they're outside of the decretive will or whatever, but no. You can be outside of his perceptive will by not following what it says. Right. So what does all this have to do with God not healing someone we love or allowing disaster to strike? We have to trust that everything that happens is part of God's plan and is fulfilling his purposes. And yes, this is hard to do when you don't know what his plan is. But that's when you revert back to God is completely good and God is always with us. You remember those things. And Chris, I think we need to point something else out about this passage in Matthew 7. People will sometimes use this passage to prove that it's man who chooses Jesus to be their savior, not Jesus who chooses man who he's elected. Exactly. 
They use Matthew 7 and 7, 8, which just as a reminder says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. The people who think it's man that chooses Jesus and not the other way around argue that this passage says that anyone who seeks God will find him and anyone who knocks on the door, God will open it. But there are two problems with this argument. First, this section is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is speaking to believers. There are unbelievers present and listening, but Jesus makes it clear that his words here are for believers. Matthew 5, 1-2 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus witnessing the gospel to try to persuade people to believe in him. It's his teaching crucial truths to those who already do believe. Matthew 7 verses 7 to 11 is a promise for believers. It's not about unbelievers, quote unquote, finding Jesus who was never lost to begin with. Hello. (laughs) He never needed GPS. No. Jesus was never lost. (laughs) No. And Chris, that's exactly right. But, you know, even if you concede, which scripture absolutely doesn't, but we'll play that side. Even if you can see that this could be talking about an unbeliever asking, knocking, seeking God, you still have a problem saying this shows that man chooses God because it doesn't line up with other scripture. Remember, something we constantly say. Scripture must must interpret scripture. scripture. (laughs) So let's look at Romans 3, 10 to 18 for an example. And that says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Chris, this is our and everyone else's pre-saved, pre-regenerated condition. Given that, would someone in this condition ever go asking, seeking, or knocking for God? They would have absolutely no inclination to. But let's add a few other verses to this. Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 6 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And I'm going to throw another one out there. John 15, verse 16, which says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We could go on and on quoting verses from Genesis all the way through Revelation to prove that God chose us. We could. Uh, The whole Bible says it the whole way through. So if you want to think that this verse is about someone asking, knocking, and seeking Jesus for salvation, you still have to concede that they would only be doing that because the Holy Spirit had already regenerated their hearts, also known as God chose to save them. That's right. Okay, I think we made that point. I think we did. So let's look at the last verse for today, and that's Matthew 7, 12. 
the verse where we got the title of this hmm. episode. And just a reminder, Matthew 7, 12 says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the golden rule, but it's a lot more than that. Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them and do this for the law and prophets. And we often think about the Old Testament law being the Ten Commandments. And they were certainly a part of it. But actually, there were 613 total laws given by God in the Old Testament to Moses. And every one of them is part of the law. Some gave instructions on how to eat, some how to clean yourself, how to deal with bodily functions, how to handle diseases, even how to clean your house. I should read that. (laughs) The goal was that God's people were to be a holy nation, achieving holiness and purity in all areas of life. Through the 613 laws, God was showing the Israelites the holiest and healthiest way to live. Exactly. All of the 613 laws given can be categorized into two main purposes, which we see in Matthew 22, 34 to 40. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So here an expert, quote unquote, on the law was trying to trip Jesus up by making him pick one law from the Old Testament as the most important. He was probably expecting him to pick one of the Ten Commandments. And then they were going to attack him for ranking one of God's laws above another. So they were fools. Of course they were. They were so foolish. Yeah. Jesus answers that the two greatest commandments are the greatest commandments in the law. Every one of the 613 laws in the Old Testament, even the Ten Commandments, can be categorized into one of these two commandments that Jesus gives. And again, Jesus isn't giving some new revelation that had never been taught before. He is instead teaching how the Old Testament was meant to be understood. Some of the 613 Old Testament laws and the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments showed the Israelites how to be a holy nation devoted to God. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus is quoting directly from Deuteronomy 6, 4-6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And the second greatest command Jesus gives, love your neighbor as yourself, isn't new either. The 613 Old Testament laws that didn't teach the Israelites how to love the Lord their God with all their soul and with all their strength, as well as the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments were meant to teach the Israelites to look out for each other and respect each other. In other words, love your neighbor as yourself. And again, Jesus is just affirming what the Old Testament says and how it was always meant to be understood. It's too long to read, but most of chapter 19 of Leviticus is laws that show the Israelites how to love their neighbors as themselves. It lists things like 
Don't over-harvest your fields so that there will be scraps left for your poor to come and gather. Don't cheat your workers out of wages. Don't pervert justice. Don't slander anyone. Don't lie. Don't endanger another person's life. Don't steal. All kinds of things like that. Yeah. How to love your neighbor. Exactly. And Jesus' reference to Old Testament law and the prophets in Matthew 7, 12 is his showing that the Old Covenant still stands. It just needs to be seen and interpreted through New Covenant eyes. He tells us in Matthew 5, 17 that he didn't come to abolish the 613 Old Testament laws, but to fulfill them. After spending the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 7 showing us how to love our neighbors as ourselves in specific situation, he wraps it up by connecting it to the Old Testament and giving us easy, practical way to remember how to love our neighbors if we ever are unsure. Do to them what we wish others would do to us. Yeah, that's a perfect way to sum it up. And that's a good place to end today. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you've been blessed by this episode and all the others. As always, please feel free to leave any comments, questions, or feedback about this or any other episode on the podcast platform that you're listening to or on any of our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Parler. Have a blessed day, everyone.